0: this is recording. RTI International International. Center Forensic presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In this season, We will cover content given at the NIJ Forensic Technology Center of Excellence's Impression, Pattern, and Trace Evidence Symposium. The symposium was held January 22nd through 25th in Arlington, Virginia. The symposium had over 200 on-site attendees and over 300 online attendees. To kick off the season, Just Science interviews John VanderKoelk from the Indiana State Laboratory, John discusses his belief of the importance of challenging your teachers and how nature's patterns are apparent throughout Friction Ridge evidence. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan.
1: Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host from RTI International. Welcome on board. We're recording today from the Impression Pattern Trace Evidence Symposium in Arlington, Virginia, from the uh, beautiful Renaissance Capitol View Hotel. Uh, we're here with a good friend of mine, a, new, a relatively new friend, John, I think you and I have known each other a couple of years now, John Vander Kolk. Uh, John Vander Kolk received a Bachelor of Arts degree in Forensic Science and Psychology from Indiana University in 1979, the same year he became an Indiana State Police Trooper, and then became a, uh, went over to, to the good side and the Forensic Laboratory as a Crime Scene Tech in 1983, and was assigned as a criminalist in the following year. He became laboratory manager in 1996 and retired as a police officer in 2005 and is now serving as a civilian and manager of the Indiana State Police
2: Laboratory in Fort Wayne. Welcome John. Good to be here. One thing real quick first is my major was forensic studies not quite forensic science. Um, I emphasize that in court because forensic studies was criminal justice basically before criminal justice came along. So it was early in the stages of criminal justice degrees with some forensic science courses. What kinds of coursework outside of forensic science did you have to take? It was mostly the police side of criminal justice, the classic crime, statistics of crime, behavior of crime, criminals, investigation aspects, prisons, probation, courts, classic criminal justice degree of today. And early in my first semester, I said, I think I'd like to be a state trooper. And I started looking for universities and said, hey, I'm already here, forensic studies. So I started the very next semester as a forensic studies major. And I wanted to be a trooper. I wanted to be outside. I like the challenge of being outside and working and working with people and the aspects of being a police officer is what I wanted to do. We're gonna be talking a
1: lot about the philosophy of forensic science as well as the philosophy of science today. And I'm gonna start right now because I'm a scientist by trade. And when I think about fingerprints versus tire prints versus say uh, cartridge cases, I think about it in terms of, there's a very different physics going on or biology in the case of fingerprints. And so although they are all patterns, their uh, sources are different and therefore how they manifest is going to be very, very different. Is that manifest in terms of how the practitioner works fundamentally and how the practitioner talks about the the matches? Or how does that come out in the wash with respect to uh, how practice actually occurs?
2: The way I would emphasize today is study the source object first. Where did the image or impression come from? Was it from a natural item such as your friction skin I don't like saying friction ridges, I like saying friction skin because there's more to the skin than just ridges. So is it friction skin from nature? Is it the gun from the design manufacturing process? A shoe from the manufacturing process? What features in the manufacturing processes can be repeated and what are the random or unique features in the item that is produced? So nature produces patterns, the manufacturing process by humans and machines produces patterns. So study how the patterns in the source object are produced first before you study the impressions left behind.
1: There is one fundamental difference, isn't there? Because you can't really, you can attempt, but they always grow back. You can't really change the patterns in a finger. I'll say friction ridge, but those ridges to do, <laughs> in that case, do come back, basically, no matter what you do to try to within reason try to uh, modify them. And so the fingerprint examiner works by, in some respects, exclusion, right? If there's something not right, if there's something not matching, then you have an exclusion. Whereas the firearms examiner uh, will look at inclusion, right? If there's something that doesn't quite fit, it's because there is that variability in that system and you can't always pick up that variability each time that gun is fired. So there is something fundamentally different about those two in that regard, isn't there?
2: There are two different ways to look at it. One, when your finger touches an object, what is the object that's touching it? Like, is it a concrete block of concrete? Well, the texture that receives it may not receive the fingerprint image sufficiently. Well, as the bullet passes through the bore of the gun, If the bullet's a little bit undersized, the features within the bore of the gun may not record sufficiently onto that bullet. Sometimes it might, sometimes it might not. So it all depends on the object leaving the impression and the object receiving the impression as part of the quality and quantity of detail you have in the resulting impression. Plus between skin and guns, in skin you only go to have natural patterns In guns, you'll have repeatable patterns and uncontrolled natural patterns as part of the manufacturing process. Can't eliminate all of the repeatable patterns, so there will be some random patterns also in the bore of the gun. Examiners talk a lot about experience, right? And you have been in the
1: field for over 30 years now. You have a lot of experience. You've seen a lot, but there's no way you can hold in your head every glass shard you've ever examined, right? Most definitely. And so how do you know You know, intuitively? How can you rely intuitively? Well, one thing I should confess also to the listeners is that John and I have been working on a source book in Human Factors. Uh, he and I are on a uh, working group of about a dozen folks. Some of them are cognitive psychologists. Some of them are practitioners who are putting together a, what we hope is a very nice source book to try to understand more deeply how human factors relate to not only the examination process, but even the organization of the laboratory, the training of, of laboratory practitioners, and so on. So I worry that because the human mind is so good at filling in patterns, that when you look at these kinds of variability, natural versus unnatural, that you're making judgments that probably may not be there. How, I mean, how do, you, how do you deal with that?
2: Experience also has a trust factor, trust factor in participating in my communities that I do. I participate in the firearms community, the fingerprint community, the shoe print community, and the fracture community. The trust factor is, what are these other scientists, forensic scientists, telling me about patterns in their specific discipline? Trust and belief work together. I can't know everything there is to know about forensic comparative science, But I also trust my peers who are working in the Forensic Science discipline and I glean from them their experience, understanding and judgments into my experience, understanding and judgments of the past and what I am looking at today in this particular exam. So I don't memorize patterns of what I've seen before, it's more of a trust in the philosophy of comparative science than memorizing patterns from years gone by.
1: So is it fair, then, if, if I were a defense attorney and you, were, you know, had some evidence against my client, for me to ask you reputational questions? Go I mean, for it. Yeah? Is in, and you think that in, in, in these qualitative disciplines, at least they're qualitative now, I know we're working on some other things right now, but they're certainly qualitative now, that, the, that reputation to some extent matches with reliability?
2: the reputation of the people that you're talking about?
1: Well, yeah, because that really is what the core of it. If, if you're saying, okay, in order to be able to determine whether I am able to make a particular kind of comparison in an accurate way or reliable way, you need to understand within the context of your community, your forensic science community of practitioners within that discipline, you know, kind of what constitutes an appropriate judgment, right? But in any community of human beings, there's going to be your gadflies. <laughs> I think, I'm, I think I, I'm, I've always been a little bit of a Cervantes fan. <laughs> Those who are leaning against windmills can have their view and their point. But in this case, you also are looking at, am I relying on people of good repute, right? I mean, you're really looking at it. When you're talking about a qualitative human
2: discipline, you're almost talking about it from a community perspective. I'm talking about what they teach me, what I teach others, how we challenge each others, and also the experience, understanding judgments that I make, what they make, and trusting them. But within that is also the proficiency test that we take, the competency test we take, and the training that we give. As I make my known ground truth, source images, I know where they came from and present them to trainees, present them to other people, present them in the workshops I conduct. The comparative science discipline works. Humans can make mistake, but let's talk about the mistakes that we make. But the overall philosophy, I believe, of comparative science works. We are not infallible, we can make mistakes. I believe we should challenge all teachers that we have. I believe you should challenge me and that's what you're doing on this question, maybe. <laughs> in a friendly way. In John, a friendly course, way. Yeah. Uh-huh. But we should challenge our teachers, and we don't take it as a blind trust, but what you teach me, I'm going to take back and try to experience, understand, and judge what you taught me. I'm not gonna take it and say, uh, yep, Dr. John Morgan said that, so I'm going with it. But I'm gonna challenge. Every student I have in the state police lab, I say go out, get a multiple teachers out there, go to their seminars go to their workshops and challenge them then come back and challenge me challenge what you're learning from many in the community cuz we're all different we teach differently as you can probably tell I'm going to teach differently than the next workshop instructor if we all thought and taught and acted the alike and knew everything the same we wouldn't be here this week Yeah, so forums like the Impression,
1: Pattern, Trace Evidence Symposium here are very, very important because they're times not only for workshops, but also for you all to to discuss and and sort of challenge each other a little bit, isn't it?
2: I I believe challenge each other is also part of forensic science, not just the blind trust of they said it, so go forth with it.
1: I worry because there are, it seems, it, it isn't as common as it might have been at one time, or maybe it wasn't, I don't know if it ever was. Uh, for folks to spend 30 to 40 years in the discipline, and so if you're going to have an apprentice-based discipline, I mean, that's what you're really describing, right, is that it's an apprentice-based discipline. You need to have some of the folks, you need to have people around who uh, are taking the time and have the time and and are making that part of their career choice to be able to to do that kind of, it's beyond instruction, but to kind of sponsor the, the the broad community's apprenticeship of the new practitioners.
2: Yeah, I would like the apprentice, the students and the teachers, to go beyond just the local laboratory. You have to get out. You have to go beyond one instructor or one student. And therefore, just because you said it, I'm going to trust you and only you. You have to broaden your horizons. The one part of apprenticeship is, yes, you have to learn from experience, understanding, and judgments that you make, but also what the teacher makes. The teacher has to review the work product you're doing and challenging you on the work product. Like one philosophy back in my early days of comparative science was, while a student in training, thou shalt not make any mistakes, otherwise you're gonna get booted out of the program. Well, that's wrong you should make mistakes in your training. If you don't make any mistakes in your training, the training's too easy. What is the actual threshold that you're gonna work with once you start doing casework on your own? Well, if you never made any mistakes in training, you don't know what that threshold is gonna be. You're way too conservative, probably, on both sides of the threshold, the exclusion and the identification threshold. You don't wanna make mistakes when it counts during casework, And that's part of the quality assurance program in the laboratory to review the work product and monitor the work product. So on the making mistakes in training, learning, experience, understanding and judging the images you're looking at, you'll probably remember those mistakes that you made in training more than you remember correct identifications, the correct conclusions, or the correct exclusions that you made in training. So with that, you have to build through training what that threshold for judgment-making is or should be within self and the community.
1: And so what John is uh, referring to here is at the core of a lot of our discussions in the Human Factor Sourcebook, and also in a lot of discussions being held now about leadership in the crime laboratory and the culture of the crime laboratory, a culture that accepts error as part of the course of doing businesses. You know, I, again, I come from the scientific field. And if you're not making mistakes, and if you're not failing in scientific research, then you're not doing it right. I mean, you're supposed to be getting to the point where you're—you know some of the experiments are gonna work out the way you anticipated, and there's ones that don't work out the way you anticipated that are really the interesting ones, right? And you also learn a way of, of using language that is descriptive of what you find, right? You know, uh, one of the things I have as a problem with a lot of scientists sometimes these days, some scientists, is that they will have a finding, uh, like in medicine, all right? I have a finding that if you eat more pomegranates, right, you'll, (laughs) you'll be healthier, right? Well, really never is that finding. The finding is usually, I did this public health study with a particular population, and the population that was eating the pomegranates wound up being healthier than the population that didn't eat the pomegranates. And I may not even have a theory of why pomegranates are actually better. <laughs> right? So there might be a thousand other factors. And so you learn, as a truly as a scientist, to characterize what you say very carefully. You report what your findings are and try not to let your own interpretation of the findings go too far beyond what the science actually can tell you. Um, So I know you're an advocate very much for being careful with language. Which disciplines do you think do a really good job in terms of the language that they use to
2: describe comparison findings? I'm gonna start with probably the fracture exam. I really like their ranges of conclusions, but also fracture exam takes into more things than just the broken or torn edges. You might be looking at things in the two pieces Like a tool mark exam, where they produced on the same machinery, things that carry across from one piece to the other beyond the fractured edges. So there might be more to the fracture exam than just the fractured edges. So you might incorporate a tool mark result into the fracture result. I like the fingerprint conclusions. Basically, identification, exclusion, inconclusive, I don't know. I think firearm and tool mark should be extremely similar to the shoe print, tire print conclusions, even though they're not. They both have repeatable features in the manufacturing process. The bore of the gun, number of lands and grooves, the width of the lands and grooves, design specifications of the bore of the gun as one aspect of it. Shoes, let's say they come out of the same mold, so they have repeatable features. Guns have repeatable features. So when you do comparative measurements of guns and shoes, the images from guns and shoes, First you measure the details of the repeatable features. Then you measure the details of the random imperfections within the repeatable features.
1: So I'll challenge you one way, and that is that the footwear folks tend to stop at class characteristic and type classification, right? No, they can go to identification. I know they can, (laughs) (laughs) but they don't often because the persistence of the shoe print features obviously changes because they're they're basically wear marks, right? Yes. Whereas the firearms examiners are able to do
2: identifications
1: much more readily than the shoe print folks. So there is a difference there.
2: Not in the philosophy, but in the practicality. There's a difference in the persistency of the features on the source object. So in the philosophy is the same, but the practical aspect, the persistency of the features in the gun are probably more durable than the persistency of the features on the bottom of a shoe. So therefore the philosophy is the same, but the practice may be a little less often with the shoes because persistency wears away. One example I like using for shoe prints is, if I have bubble gum stuck to the bottom of the shoe, and I have grains of sand wedged into the bubble gum, that gum starts to get hard and pretty well set amongst the tread of the shoe. I have this crime scene impression with that bubble gum impression recorded very well. And the shoe is acquired quickly, let's say, and I make my test impressions in that bubble gum and sand pattern sufficiently persistent enough between the time of the crime scene and the time of my test impression. I'm going to identify that bubble gum print as being the same source of bubble gum. not necessarily even a shoe print, even though it came in as a shoe print request. So persistency is the big, big component of everything we do. Like in fingerprints, friction skin impressions. I might have a blister or paper cut on my skin, and that blister or paper cut is recorded in the crime scene impression. I'm gonna use it if we, find you quickly and make a new inked impression with you and that paper cuts right in the same spot or that blisters right in the same spot. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna use those blisters and paper cuts in my examination process. Sure, sure. So persistency is a very big component for the impressions.
1: Yeah, so one of the other things that I've been thinking about lately is the medium on which the impression is made too. So I'm thinking about that because I've been looking at bite mark impression evidence because human skin is an imperfect medium to capture whatever uniqueness there is in dentition. That's one of the things, again, I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna say, well, mud is also a harder medium to try to pull out of than a bullet or casing, right? Which are just nice and beautiful (laughs) ways to to capture impressions. Uh, And I think that where forensic scientists and the qualitative disciplines have gotten in trouble, it's actually on that side of it. I think think there's a good understanding of persistence, but there's been a lack of appreciation of the quality of the medium of
2: impression. What do you think? The medium of impression is very critical. Like you mentioned mud. Can mud be sufficient? Well, it can be sufficient in a shoe print, but probably not very often. Mm -hmm. Unless it's a nice, three-dimensional, hard clay-type mud. But if it's a sloppy, wet, muddy impression, I'm going to struggle with it, most likely. You talked about skin impressions. How many shoe print examiners try to do a shoe print or a tire print exam on a, like a photograph of a body, whether it's living or de- deceased? Shoe print examiners might try that exam, but what do they understand about the medium receiving that impression? How is the bruising taking place when the tread contacts the body and breaks the blood vessels? You know, is it a positive image? Is it a negative image? Which way is the blood bruising the body? when I see tread patterns. So I have to consider positive images, negative, reversed images, things like that. Bite marks in the body could be similar to bruising of a tire print or a shoe print on a body, but different in that, does the bite mark break the skin or just bruise the skin? Does the shoe tread break the skin or just bruise the skin? So yes, the receiving medium is very critical, on the quality and quantity of detail recorded in the impression.
1: One of the other things that you mentioned, and I am I'm kind of want to revisit it, is this idea of the experience of the community, as it were. We're going to go into the workshop on a different podcast, but the workshop you're doing now is mostly about fracture, right? This week's workshop is fracture. Yeah. And one of the problems with fracture is that it's not as common. And so building up this sort of what is the knowledge that we have of the fracture dynamics in a particular kind of etiology, maybe glass is more well-known just because there's so much failure analysis work that's done out there. So I guess one question I have is, is it fair for the forensic scientist to be looking at, and, and do you do much interaction with people who look at these systems outside of the forensic science domain? The glass one actually is interesting to me because I actually did a little bit of failure analysis work back when I was in the materials laboratory at Hopkins, and we would look at uh, different kinds of components from spacecraft or missiles and all that kind of stuff. And so some of the stuff that I've seen in fracture reminds me of that, but is it possible to try to broaden your community in that regard or how how do you struggle with that issue?
2: Yes, I would say, you know, back in my day of doing active casework, I might do five to 10 fracture cases a year for Northeast Indiana. So like you say, the numbers aren't there. Not that many times as the evidence collected at crime scenes. For the broadening the community, At one of these type symposiums, I crossed paths with a fracture researcher at Iowa State University, Dr. Ashraf Bastaros. He was trying to come into the community, and he's an expert in metal and metal fractures and aeronautical engineering, and I was in the back of the same room with him. They were talking NIJ grants, it was an NIJ meeting room all day at one of the seminars, and he says, What do you do? And so I told him basically what I just told you, a little bit of everything of comparing patterns, including fracture exam. Then he kind of got a glean in his eye and says, hey, you want to talk metal fractures with me? I said, sure, why not? (laughs) Where are you from? He said, Iowa State University. I said, I can drive to Iowa. Yeah, I'll come see you. So he's actively pursuing measuring topography of the fractured cross-sectional edges of metal. We're using broken knives, and I do the forensic comparative side of the exam without putting the pieces in direct contact of each other because he doesn't like that. And he uses his technology to measure the cross-sectional edges of the broken knife blades. So he's trying to bring his knowledge of fractured metal to help us in forensic comparative science. So in that aspect, yeah, I'm trying to go out beyond the discipline. Dr. Bastaros is actually going to be doing a podcast for
1: us. We're going to hope to line Dr. Bastaros up right after this podcast, so you'll be able to hear more directly about him and his work. And he is giving a talk here at the Impression, Pattern, Trace Evidence Symposium. And that talk will also be archived as well. So you'll be able to both see his talk and John's talk on the generalizing across disciplines archival, in addition to listening to the podcast. One of the things about that, though, which is interesting, and, and, I, and I like to highlight it, And that is the whole idea of forensic scientists, you know, interfacing with the research community. You've been a real paradigm for that, not only with Dr. Bastaris, but also with Tom Busey at Indiana University, your alma mater. And uh, for my money, I think Tom has has done more relevant empirical work in uh, human factors of forensic examination than anyone else out there. And uh, he's really relied on you for a number of years. How long have you known Tom?
2: I recruited Tom Busey in 2002 to help us explain and understand what we're doing, how we make our judgments.
1: I love how you put it, recruit. That's exactly what I would hope that the forensic scientists listening would look on doing. It's like, I need this kind of scientist. I'm going to go and find that person and, and recruit them because uh, we, need, we need to get some of these research scientists excited about forensic
2: science. Well, I'm happy to, you know, like Dr. Bustauer has recruited me in the back room of a meeting. Mm-hmm. I recruited Dr. Busey by writing a letter to the chair of the psychology department at IU Bloomington. And I did get a degree in psychology, but it was more the behavior side of psychology is because I wanted to be a state trooper. Right. Knowing what I know now, I should have studied more of the cognitive side of psychology, but Tom's on the vision cognitive side of psychology. So I wrote a significant letter after Judge Pollack made his famous fingerprint, Daubert, decision of... Mm-hmm. We don't need no stinking experts and fingerprints. Just show the fingerprints to the jury and let them decide. Well, I was in Swigfast at the time, and I started shaking when I heard that rolling. And I said, gosh, there's more to making judgments than just looking at shapes. What's the difference in experts and novices? So I said, well, cognitive science. I use psychology. I know where the building is. <laughs> let's see if I can re- let's see if I can recruit somebody to help us explain how do we see, think, and know and make our judgments. Is there a difference between experts and novices when we make our judgments? And Tom's been doing wonderful research since 2002 with us.
1: And I think that's really interesting because many forensic scientists may look on stuff in human factors, which has really been way too heavy into confirmation bias, which I understand is an important issue. But there's so much more fundamental work here. And I love how you put it, which is this idea that what is the difference between a trained and experienced forensic scientist and a layperson who would be on a jury, for example? And that is kind of the classic dichotomy, isn't it? Otherwise. Yeah, you would just show the fingerprint to the jury. Why not? But there is a difference there, and understanding that difference is where why we're interested, in some respects, in human factors per se, and trying to understand the forensic scientist. So let's wrap up by talking about a particular case that illustrates these concepts. You know, what is the uniqueness of natural versus unnatural phenomena, and how that can be exploited by the forensic scientist? Before we started recording, you talked about a particular case, which is elbow impressions. And of course, nobody does elbow impressions, even though we think elbows are fairly unique. So tell us about the case and how you all analyzed that case.
2: Let's talk about why did they send us the case. They sent us the case because the CSI who worked the crime scene said, let's send this case to Fort Wayne. They'll do it. Because... Because, like Mikey
1: in Life Cereal. You got that. I remember
2: Mikey. Mikey, he likes it. Yeah. Mikey, you try it. It goes back to cow and sheep muzzle prints. Back in 1985, that's about the date I started doing casework. the local newspaper, small town where I live, put in the local newspaper, hey, John at the state police lab, who lives in our hometown of Bluffton, is now the fingerprint expert at the state police lab. So a few weeks after that, I get a phone call from Roger. Roger's the director of the 4-H Fair in Wells County, Indiana. John, we're starting to do cow and sheep muzzle prints here at the fair, kind of like your ink fingerprints why don't you come see what we're doing and tell us what it's all about. I said, that is such
1: an Indiana story well, so you, far, John. Yeah. You got that right.
2: <laughs> well, I can take it to Iowa and talk about pickles of the cow, too, in Iowa. But on the cow and sheep muzzle prints, I said, what are you talking about, Roger? And he says, it's supposed to be like fingerprints, John. You're the fingerprint experts, you tell me. So I got permission from my laboratory command to study cow and sheep muzzle prints with the help of, I'll say this, Purdue University, the rival of Indiana University. (laughs) So I went to the Purdue Agriculture School where they maintained the cow and sheep muzzle prints statewide, kind of like what a fingerprint record database would be, just cards. And they were recorded by the cow within a county and followed by the ear tag number. But on each card, they had a series of muzzle prints from the cow or from the sheep. And as I studied this, I said, Hey, I can do this. Just look at the different shapes. Intra-cow variability on each impression, kind of like fingerprints, and inter-cow variability between cows among cow variability. As long as the quality and quantity of details in both impressions, I should be able to do this.
1: Is it like Friction Ridge? Is it actually, it's more than just the geometry of the nostrils. It's actually like the skin of the animal on the nose? Most
2: definitely. People are familiar with dogs. Look at the pebbly grain of the dog's muzzle. Mm -hmm. Well, those are growth of skin around sweat pores on the muzzle of cows, sheep, and dogs. So the American Kennel Club even used to do muzzle prints of dogs back in the day, but too many of them came in poor quality and quantity of detail to make it a practical experience. But the State Fair was doing this statewide. They would register the cow and sheep, like in January, the child would grow the animal and show it in July or August. And if there was a challenge, they would look at the muzzle prints and say, this is the same cow the kid registered. Okay, very good. Um, the CSI that worked the case is the abduction case in which the victim knock at the door of the house, opens the door, she gets stun gunned, she drops. Suspect puts her in the trunk of her car, drives away, puts her in the trunk of his car and drives to Wisconsin. When the crime scene investigator worked the crime scene of her car abandoned away from the original crime scene, he developed an image on the inside of the driver's door window. What do you think that is, He's using black fingerprint powder? He looked at the detective, he got thinking about it, oh gosh, the way it's a nice little round circle, then it slides down the middle of the window right to the left. That looks like if somebody popped the door handle and used the left elbow to push the door open, then the elbow would slide down the window as the door opened. He said, that's an elbow print, what are we going to do with it? The CSI knew what I did with cow and sheep muzzle prints and the way I taught Mm -hmm. about nature's patterns and impressions. He said, send it to Fort and they'll do it. (laughs) So I made proficiency tests for my fingerprint examiner, latent print examiner. He was willing to work the case if we got it. Reviewed everything with our command at Indianapolis. Proficiency
1: tests of different elbow
2: prints? Elbow prints, we made them. Did you
1: make them, like, clean on a surface, or did you actually do scraped across a surface like was in the
2: evidence? Right off the bat, I didn't know what the evidence looked like. I just made a wide variety, left and right elbows. What I was most amazed about was the very wide variety of natural patterns in elbow skin, just all sorts of different shapes. I don't know how to quote-unquote classify. But basically in nature, I need texture, I need shapes. So Rick, Rick Otis, who did the case, he correctly associated each unknown print, each standard print correctly that I prepared. But he said, John, I can't find this one. I said, okay. But I'm thinking, gosh, you should have identified all of them to something, someplace, yes. a standard, someplace. Once I look at everything I gave him, I failed to give him a standard for the one unknown. Oh, okay. So I said, so I said cha-ching. He did, <laughs> he did not incorrectly identify it to the wrong elbow. So sure. that, false that positives a, and a, false negatives are important. Yep. That is mm-hmm. a bonus to it. So we reviewed it with our command and they said, go forth and compare. So instead of doing the classic ACE-V, we did a simultaneous ACE examination of the elbow prints. Before he started his casework, he made copies of the crime scene prints and copy of the standards of the suspects. And when they obtained the ink prints from the suspect, I said, get multiple angles of expression of the left elbow making prints and multiple expressions of the angle of the right elbow making prints and just give us a stack of standards. Mm-hmm. Don't throw any standards away. So they did. They sent us about a half inch pack of standards of left and right elbow prints of the one suspect. I said, Rick, just before you start, make me copies of everything, the unknown print and the standard prints. And you go to your office, I'll go to mine, and when we're ready we'll talk to each other. So in about twenty minutes he came to my office and said I'm ready, and I said, give me a few more minutes. About 10 minutes later, I said, write your answer down on a piece of paper. We'll flip them over at the same time and see what we say. So we both flipped the paper over and said, ID, left elbow, and we went with it. (laughs) So yeah, um, it's not That's interesting
1: because you almost had to create a new forensic discipline in order to be able to do the work.
2: But I don't view it as a forensic discipline by itself. I view it as comparing nature's patterns, impressions of nature's patterns.
1: Did you end up testifying in that case?
2: Oh, we tried to. This is the early days of Daubert. Daubert had already started in the early 2000s. It's probably about the same time as 2002 with Judge Pollack's ruling. And since the case had crossed state lines, it became a federal prosecution case. Mm -hmm. So I called the federal prosecutor and told him, we'd like to testify on this elbow print. He goes, okay. (laughs) <laughs>
1: tell, tell. he hadn't gotten a call like that before, no probably.
2: we would like to testify he goes okay and as far as our evidence goes he chose not to because the victim was still alive in the suspect's house in wisconsin when they surrounded the house the suspect approached the house and the police said something like where's the victim he says, in the house, you got me. So the living victim was a very good witness against the suspect, and Right. the federal prosecutor, in the early days of Dalbert did not want to go forth with it. We did, after that trial, approach the state prosecutor and say, will you charge the suspect with conversion of her car at the original crime scene? And he goes, how many years did he get in the federal case? And I go,
1: like, <laughs> <laughs> like 500 life sentences, I assume.
2: He, he, he obviously did not hear what I said. He said, how many years did he get? And I said, something like 235 years. <laughs> so he goes, I don't think I can justify another trial. So we tried to testify, but we're not able to.
1: You're ready, though.
2: We wanted to.
1: Well, thank you very much for being with us here, John. I appreciate it very much. We are going to have John on again, and I
2: hope you look for uh,
1: the next podcast with him. We're going to be talking in more detail about the workshop that he presented here at Impression Pattern Trace Evidence Symposium. In the meantime, thank you very much for being with us, John. My
2: pleasure to be with you. I enjoy talking about forensic comparative science.
0: Next week on Just Science, we will discuss fracture mechanics with Dr. Ashraf Bastaros from Iowa State University. Did you miss the 2018 Impression Pattern and Trace Evidence Symposium? We are releasing the archive content today, so please visit forensicCOE.org to register now. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.